There's this thing, a phenomenon really, called the Mandela Effect. This lady, Fiona Broom, coined the phrase back in 2010, and it's some batshit crazy stuff, let me tell you. You see, Fiona Broom swears up and down and sideways that Nelson Mandela died some time back in the 1980s while imprisoned in South Africa. And she's not alone. She and a whole slew of other people claim to remember details about Mandela's funeral, including alleged CNN news coverage and even a scuffle over publishing rights involving Mandela's widow, Winnie. But here's the wonky thing. None of that ever happened. None of it. Zero. Mandela was freed from prison in February of 1990. He went on to serve as president of South Africa from 94 to 99, and he didn't pass away until 2013. And so, Miss Broom is wrong. They're all wrong. Every last one of the thousands of people who remember Mandela's prison death. Wrong. It's a fact. Yet these people insist that it isn't. They insist that Nelson Mandela died in the 1980s. They hold on to it like a religious creed, which is both fascinating and bizarre. And stranger still, more people are remembering the sequence of events all the time. It's like a disease spreading around the internet, infecting minds and memories. And thus, the Mandela Effect was born, or maybe discovered. Now, this would be weird enough, except that there are other similar instances. Lots of them. There are a load of people who believe in the existence of a 1990s movie called Shazam, where Sinbad plays a genie. Except that doesn't exist either. You see, there's no film footage, no studio invoices, and there's always a paper trail. No reviews, and Sinbad's gone on record stating unequivocally that it never happened. Period. The end. But it's not the end because people still believe, despite all evidence to the contrary. It happened. They can't seem to get the notion out of their collective heads. Then there's the Berenstain Bears. Or is it Berenstain Bears? Controversy. And Billy Graham's televised funeral. Even though he's still alive. Well, this is 2017. And then what about Curious George? Tail or no tail? Or Jif Peanut Butter vs. Jiffy Peanut Butter. Hint, it's always and forever been Jif. Now there's an enormous Reddit forum entirely dedicated to the Mandela Effect, with more topics and more examples if you're interested in seeing the weirdness of the internet in all of its glory. Now, some experts say that the Mandela Effect is mass delusion, a false memory somehow contracted by thousands of people all at once a type of collective mismembering. But there are other theories, too. Some people claim that the Mandela Effect is evidence of time travel. Yeah, that's not a joke. They believe someone from the future went back and altered the past, creating these odd little ripples in time. Maybe someone saved Mandela, causing the Berensteins to be replaced by their doppelgangers, the Berensteins. And poor Curious George ended up losing his tail. Shh. Gone. It's the butterfly effect played out in a minutia of life. 
just these little innocuous tweaks here and there. But maybe that's it. Or maybe that's not it. Ms. Broom, well, she claims the Mandela Effect is the result of parallel universes, one slightly off-kilter from her own, interconnecting, rubbing shoulders while passing in the hallways of the cosmos, or maybe slamming together on the subatomic level. Personally, that's the way I lean. But what the hell do I know? I'm not an expert. I've never gone to college, and I work at a crappy security booth making minimum wage. Okay, so if I'm not some diploma-wielding expert, why do I bring all of this up? I'll tell you why. Because I've experienced the Mandela Effect too. It's not some big internet-breaking meme like the Berenstain Bears or Sinbad, the not-genie. It's smaller, more specific, more intimate. But if the Mandela Effect is real, then this is it in spades. It has to be because I don't know how else to explain it. My Mandela effect has to do with the house on the end of North Cedar, and I know it's real because the place almost killed me. And it did kill Jackie Morgan and Mark Lehman. That's a fact. Murdered them both, though it all got blamed on a train accident. It wasn't a train accident, though. Not by a country mile. Okay, so let's roll things back a bit. I grew up in Lusk, Wyoming. It's this little dirt speck town of maybe 1,500 people, sandwiching the U.S. 85 like two pieces of stale bread, rotting from age. It's the kind of place that hardly warrants map space, the kind of place people drive through, but only because they're headed somewhere better, cleaner, nicer. Lusk has a lot of old brick buildings, remnants from a different era, Run-down motels, shitty glass-fronted diners, and even shittier gas stations and truck stops. Every vehicle in town is probably a pickup. All of them old, rusted out, and of course, American-made. It's a podunk town, full of cow-shit-covered farmers, bored-ass rednecks and wrinkle-skinned retirees. And with all that said, there is one interesting thing about Lusk. And that's the house at the end of North Cedar past Jefferson Street, all the way at the edge of the cemetery. It's in an old, dilapidated American foursquare, perched on top of a small rise, snuggled back among a cluster of dark pines and leafy oaks. I could still see it perfectly in my head, just like an old photo. The sprawling front porch, framed by squat square columns, the boards all worn and slightly warped, the white paint stained and peeling. Dull windows running along the front, both upstairs and down, staring at the world like a menacing eyes of some gigantic spider. And it had this kooky weather vane on top, an antique brass rooster riddled with green pockmarks, jutting up like a giant middle finger to the world. That damn weather vane always stands out in my mind. Anyway, the place scared the absolute holy bejesus out of me as a kid. You see, me and my pals, Jackie Morgan, Caroline Buckner, Mark Lehman, whom we called Scooter, and Danny Carlisle, we'd go riding by it sometimes. We'd do it on a lark, just, you know, tear ass past, pedaling our bikes a million miles an hour. 
sure that something would burst out from beneath the front porch. Either that or come barreling out of the front door, jaws yawning wide, yellow claws raking at the air, ready to disembowel the lot of us. I don't know why we thought that. You know, nobody lived there. The place was vacant and perpetually empty, and we'd never seen anyone go in or out. But the thought, the fear, that persisted nonetheless. All of this is to say, I remember that house in razor-sharp detail, and I remember what happened there, back in the June of 95. And it did happen. That's the gods to honest truth. It was the second week of summer break when we went in for the first time, and for the last, I suppose. We were having a sleepover, a camping trip technically, at Caroline Buckner's place, which was off of Four and Holly by the elementary school. It's weird thinking back to that. I mean, we were all 14, except for Danny, who was 15, held back a year because, well, it was Danny, and we were still doing co-ed sleepovers. Now, that's the mid-90s, mind you. None of our parents cared about jack shit as long as there was a modicum of supervision, and technically, Caroline's dad was there. In reality, Caroline's dad was a full-blown alcoholic who was blackout drunk 95% of the day, so we were on our own. We could have been running trains back there and that jackass wouldn't have noticed. I mean, we didn't because Caroline was basically one of the guys, but we totally could have. What we did do, though, was steal a bottle of vodka. Now, it's fuzzy in my head, but I'm pretty sure it was Crown Ruse. And got pretty drunk around a big old campfire. The booze tasted like paint thinner mixed with nail polish remover, but I remember drinking the holy living crap out of it anyway. That crap burned my throat going down and left my eyes watering like I'd sliced a whole bag of onions, but I took slug after slug like a champ. All of us did. We stood around, smoking stale reds, which we also stole from Caroline's dad, bathing in a drifting cloud of blue-gray smoke while we cracked jokes and told ghost stories in the flickering firelight. Now some of the stories were classic urban legend fare. The clown statue, Bloody Mary, the hook, oldies but goodies, one and all. Scooter, well, he told a couple of stories from that book, scary stories to tell in the dark. I remember Wonderful Sausage and the Red Dot, and Scooter was a hell of a storyteller. He had a real knack for it knew exactly how to pace things, how to hit all the cues just right, and string you along like some gullible sucker at a used car lot. He did this thing where he'd drop his voice real low, so you'd have to crane your neck to hear, and then boom, an explosion of noise or a clap of his hands, and suddenly you were on a one-way trip straight to Scare City. But those stories were all bullshit. And we knew it. Even in the dark, alone with the Wyoming wilderness at our backs, we weren't scared. Not really. You see, not until Jackie told us his story about the house at the end of North Cedar. I've got a story, he'd said, his brown eyes downcast, his shoulders slumped, his mousy blonde curled in on itself while he smoked. You see, he'd gone in not so long ago 
decided to check it out after he heard some seniors from a local high school talking about how there was all kinds of booze and cigarettes stockpiled in the basement, like rations squirreled away for the apocalypse. Loads and loads of old whiskey and homemade moonshine. Good stuff, not like the swill we were drinking that night. And so Jackie went, broke in through the back door, then trekked down into the gloomy basement all by his lonesome. But there hadn't been any liquor waiting for him down there. No. Instead, there'd been a hole in the wall, beneath the basement stairs by the water heater. Inside that hole had been a man, or maybe not a man. Jackie seemed undecided about that. He wore old rags, Layers and layers of heavily stained coats and dirt-caked jeans. He looked like the most down-and-out hobo Jackie had ever laid eyes on. And if that weren't enough weirdness, he wore pelts, too. All stitched together like a cape. Rabbit skin stained with old blood and gore. Bits of antler and yellowed bone attached on with leather straps. His skin was ashy. Jackie said, and withered like a worm left out in the sun. Now at first, Jackie had genuinely thought this guy was dead, laying in that hole in the wall, unmoving and stiff as an old board. But when Jackie backed away, making for the stairs like any rational human being would, the guy shot right up, his eyes wide, back arched, arms rigid. Now Jackie wasn't an idiot so he didn't wait around to bullshit with the weirdo. No way. He bolted for the stairs like an Olympic track star, legs pumping as fast as they'd carry him. He was most of the way up when the pounding started, a pair of fists beating furiously against the underside of the wooden steps. And when Jackie got to the top of the stairs, he faltered. Run! His mind clambered at him. Run and don't ever look back. But he did look back. It was a compulsion too strong to resist, a bit like watching an oncoming car accident. You know it's going to be screwed up, but you just can't seem to look away. Well, Jackie looked. Just a quick gander over one shoulder, and honestly, I can't blame him. How often have I slogged up the stairs late at night, but then paused to look back down, to reassure some snarling beast isn't tearing after me. You see, it's instinct, it's nature. The man, loaded down with pelts, waited at the landing, one skeletal finger outthrust in accusation. Jackie lingered, fascinated and horrified in equal parts, his legs suddenly unwilling to cooperate or carry him any farther. The man-thing canted his head to one side, roomy eyes squinted, and his mouth opened. At first, there were no words, just a long building screech, like a bag full of cats stuck in a cement mixer. Those are Jackie's words, not mine. It was a sound no human could ever make, but still, Jackie stood transfixed, watching. That screech, it built and built, rising in a terrible crescendo, slowly morphing into actual words. Let me in. The words were a constant stream, screamed from a thousand different voices all at once, each one slightly out of key with the other, but all coming from the same mouth. That awful racket, 
seemed, finally broke the strange spell rooting Jackie in place. He turned, darted into the foyer, and right out of the front door like hell was on his heels. Jackie shrugged when he finished telling us the story, then ran a trembling hand through his sandy blonde hair. He tried to play it cool, but he failed. You see, he was scared, and we could all see it. Probably just some hobo hitching on the rails, he said after a time. That was possible. It wasn't unheard of for hobos to occasionally stop over in Lusk for a day or two, since the Union Pacific Rail Line curved just north of town and south of the cemetery. We all bobbed our heads in agreement, but we also edged closer to the fire because none of us believed it. The red dot might have been bullshit, but this was something different. We all felt it in the gut, I think. This was a real thing, a confirmation of something we'd always believed deep down, and sometimes I wonder if our belief is what opened the door to that hull hole in the first place. Doesn't really matter, I suppose. We were all quiet for a while, smoking our cigarettes, passing around the cheap vodka, all the fun ghost stories discarded and done away with, like spent party favors. Everyone was shaken, but okay. Right up until that moron Danny had to go and open his drunk idiot mouth. If anyone should have died in there, it should have been him. Now after all these years, I could still hear Danny's voice echoing around the campfire. His words slightly slurred and blurred on the edges. Holy shit, guys. Let's go in there. He swayed drunkenly on his leather shit kickers. I think Jackie's full of cow pies. His eyes are turning brown from all the horse shit he's spouting. So I say we call him out. Let's go over to that dump and march right down into the basement. And if there's some hobo? He sneered and grabbed his crotch in a fuck him gesture. But no one wanted to go, of course. And we all felt the weight of Jackie's story, the uneasiness of his words. But we were young, dumb. And even more importantly, we were full of cheap vodka. Way, entirely way too much cheap vodka. Besides, even though no one wanted to go, no one wanted to say so and be singled out. Even Caroline. Shit. If anything, she was even more gung-ho, eager to prove she was braver than any dick-swinging dude in our crew. So, like the teenage idiots that we were, we went. None of us had a car, so instead we loaded up on our bicycles. A mix of treks, huffies, and vintage schwins, and puddle our drunk asses across town, sticking to the dusty back roads to avoid getting caught. And up until that godforsaken house at the end of North Cedar, it was dark as the heart of the ocean when we got there. The moon, a sickly thumbnail of sliver hanging in the sky, was so obscured by rolling clouds, it was as useless as tits on a helicopter did have camping flashlights though, big old yellow sons of bitches that required a battery as big as a baseball to run. Danny was the first one to turn his on, cutting through the deep cemetery gloom with the yellow beam. The house looked the same as it always did, same boxy columns, same chip paint, same dull windows, except for now the front door was open, waiting for us, just a crack understand. 
showcasing a thin crease of inky black. But it was open. If there had been one brain cell between the whole lot of us, we would have turned back right that second and screw youthful pride right up its ass. But here's the thing about being young. You think you'll be young forever. You'll live forever. Everyone's a joke and a dare because nothing bad can happen to a 14-year-old. Not anything really bad, like death. Let's do this shit, Danny said overflowing with false bravado, cracking his knuckles like he was getting ready to wade into a fist fight instead of the mouth to hell. Yeah, I replied with a nod, trying not to sound like a colossal piece of chicken shit. Does that mean you're volunteering to go first? Scooter asked, his gaze shifting nervously between me and the barely open door. His question hung in the air. Every eye was fixed on me, expectant for my answer. And those stares inquired, You all talk, or do you got the balls to back it up? <laughs> yeah, obviously, I replied with a sniff and an eye roll. This is the shitty old house, and if there's some crackhead hobo, I paused, bent over and picked up a rusty piece of rebar laying on a pile of loose scree. I'll show him what's what. With a rebar in one hand and my square flashlight in the other, I soldiered forward, leaving the others to trail behind me. I took a deep breath and trudged up the steps. The old wood bowed under my weight, letting out soft moans and groans as though the house were a living thing. I flashed the light across the windows, but the curtains, dreary yellow things, were closed tight, obscuring the interior. I used the length of rebar to nudge the door open, sweeping my beam into the foyer. A fine layer of dust, recently disturbed by the passage of feet, Jackie probably, covered the hardwood floors, which were heavily scuffed and stained. Floral wallpaper bubbled, deeply cracked, and sporting more than a few splashes of graffiti decorated the walls. I inched into the room and swept my flashlight left, the beam washed over a boxy living room with the same tattered and peeling floral print. There was an old couch pushed up against the far wall, an ugly thing of faded orange and yellow fabric, which had to be from the 60s. Most of the cushions were slashed open, trailing white stuffing like gory ropes of intestine. There was also a stained mattress in the center of the floor, covered in empty beer bottles and old piss stains, which reeked like the inside of a hot portage on. The whole house smelled like that. It was gross. Further on, connecting to the living room, was a square dining space with a great big old table, which lay in pieces on the floor. All of its legs ripped off and scattered, Nothing that way either. I paused for a moment, stealing a peek over one shoulder at my friends who were lined up on the porch behind me, clustered together, looking small, pale, and frightened to their toes. Come on, I said. The stairs must be over that way. I jerked my head toward the right and moved deeper into the house. There was a kitchen up ahead, the floors covered in green linoleum. The few appliances that remained... A beat-to-shit gas stove and a drunkenly leaning fridge with the door hanging open were so dusty I could tell they hadn't been used in ages. 
A lone chair, wooden and high-backed, sat in the middle of the room. There was a big staircase hugging the right wall, shooting up like an arrow. But I didn't see the stairs leading down. There were two doors, though, situated between the kitchen and the staircase, and both were closed up nice and tight. I adjusted and readjusted my grip on the length of rebar, my palms slick and sweaty, and I headed for the pair of doors. The floorboards squeaked and squealed as my friends followed, completely silent except for their footfalls and the sound of heavy breathing. I padded closer to the pair of doors, a creeping dread building in my stomach and clawing up my throat like a bout of nausea. I pushed it down, determined not to crap out. Which door to pick was a coin toss, so I tucked the flashlight beneath my armpit and pulled open the one on the left, closest to the kitchen. I let out a ragged sigh of relief as my light splashed over the interior of a small bathroom with a chipped clawfoot tub, a porcelain sink, and a broken mirror, the jagged pieces carpeting the floor. One down, one to go. I scooted over to the next door, this time hesitating, my hand quivering on the knob. Sweat broke out across my forehead and my heart thumped like a jackhammer in my chest. More than anything in the world, I did not want to open that door. I didn't want to go down into the basement and meet the hobo in the furs. What the hell's the holdup? Caroline taunted from behind. Did you lose your nerve, Mac? Maybe you need to grow a pair. It might be, I have some I could lend you. She grabbed at her crotch. That earned a chorus of nervous but muted chuckles. I absently flipped her the bird in reply, steeled myself and yanked open the door, ready for a faceless monster to pounce. The door whooshed out, but there was no monster waiting. No man loitering at the foot of the stairs, demanding I let him in. I took the wooden step slowly, descending into the dark as the hairs on the back of my neck stood stiff. There were spaces between each step, and I couldn't help but envision a pale white hand shooting out and wrapping around my ankle, clamping down like a vice, and then dragging me away. But there was no hand or ankle grabbing, just like there'd been no murderous hobo. The basement was gloomy and dank, but no creepier than the rest of the house. Some old boxes, warped and moldy from the accumulated moisture, took up space against one wall, and copper tubing littered with spider webbing decorated the ceiling. There was a rusted pot-belly furnace, complete with an actual door for feeding in wood, in the left corner of the room. Metal ductwork poked up from the furnace like gnarled fingers, disappearing into the ceiling, and beneath the stairs was the water heater, and just as Jackie had said, there was a jagged hole in the concrete next to it. An artificial cave, six feet high and four or five deep. Tucked inside was a pallet made of old blankets, but no bum. There was, however, liquor. I'm talking a shit ton of bottles, some plastic, others glass, wine, whiskey, vodka, schnapps. I'm talking good stuff too, though there were no smokes. Holy shit, Danny said, spotting the treasure trove. 
We hit the motherfucking pay dirt here. The others whooped and hollered, clapping each other on the shoulders in congratulations. The fear banished, replaced by adrenaline and greed. Jackie didn't look relieved, though. He looked even more anxious. Well, let's get the real party started, Scooter said, shoving past me and into the hole, pulling free a full bottle of Goldschlager. He held it up, giving it a swirl, the flecks of gold dancing and weaving in the beam of my flashlight. We'd been drinking for maybe an hour when we heard the clunk, clunk, clang of something scraping and rooting around. It sounded like an animal, a big one. Everyone fell deathly silent, eyes going wide and wild as the sound came again, but louder this time. In the quiet, it wasn't hard to tell where the noise was coming from, the pot-bellied furnace in the corner. Everyone scrambled to their feet, beating a hasty retreat for the stairs as the sound grew louder and more persistent. Jackie was the first one up the stairs, his shoes thudding on the wood, followed by Caroline, Scooter, Danny, and me bringing up the rear. And everyone froze, though, as the handle on the furnace firewood hatch screeched open and the metal door swung outward with a rusty groan. My hands trembled, flashlight wavering, rebar twitching, as I stared at a square, a pitch black, hardly large enough to accommodate a small child in the center of the furnace. There was nothing there, though, and for a second, I almost chalked it up to coincidence. Maybe some sort of critter had gotten in, like a possum or a large squirrel, but then, a pallid face, completely bald, maggot white, and deeply creased like an old boot leather, appeared in the opening. A crude set of symbols were carved across its forehead, the wounds still red and puffy. And after all these years, I could still see that damn symbol as clear as day, like it's tattooed on my brain or something. The breath caught in my throat and I thought I might vomit as the thing stared at me with milky pink eyes. I would have said it was blind. How could it not be? But then, it winked at me, as though reading my thoughts and offered me a sly, lopsided smile. Its pencil-thin lips pulled back, revealing a mouth full of nubby black teeth like pieces of broken glass. A tongue, chalky and white slipped free, running around the edges of its too wide mouth. And then the creature, and I was sure as shit it was a creature, not a man, pulled itself from the furnace in the herky-jerky motions of bad stop-motion animation. Spidery hands tipped with dirt-caked nails came first, attached to overlong arms as it wriggled and wormed its torso free. Its arms were bulky, as though it were wearing jacket after jacket, but it didn't take long to notice the coats were moving, shifting. I gagged. Not coats, though that was an easy mistake to make at a glance. Flies. Millions of the black-bodied things. And over the top of those were the pelts, rough-cut garments, crudely stitched together into a tattered cloak of fluttering trophies. There were patches of pale pink flesh, 
almost like dried, uncured pigskin woven into that grotesque mantle. One piece of leather, a little larger than my palm, had a faded tattoo on it. A pair of praying hands with a rosary looped around them like a noose. Oh my god, Danny screamed from behind me, grabbing my shirt with a meaty palm and pulling me on. His words, bristling with an unapologetic terror, seemed to jar everyone into frantic motion, and we all broke like a herd of stampeding cows. Unlike Jackie, I didn't pause when I reached the top. I didn't need to because I could hear the things scrambling and skittering of the concrete floor, drawing ever closer. I knew it hadn't made it to the stairs yet, but I could almost feel it reaching for me. It's hot fetid breath brushing up against the nape of my neck. I darted through the entry. Danny promptly slammed the door shut behind me with a booming thunderclap. Get the hell out of the way, Caroline hollered, sprinting towards us with a lone chair from the kitchen. I shuffled back, head reeling from what I had just witnessed as she crammed the chair up beneath the knob, and not a moment too soon. The second she had it wedged firmly in place, the door handle rattled and shook, followed by a fist slamming against the wood. I stared at the door, trapped and immobilized. Then, the creature shrieked, like an inhuman noise, like a buzzcaw cutting into a piece of sheet metal. Let me in. Let's go, Danny said, tugging on my shoulder. I didn't need much prompting. I wheeled around and beelined for the front door, except Scooter was already there, desperately turning the knob, trying to pry the door open. It didn't budge, not one inch. The windows, I said, my voice oddly calm and detached. Bust them out. Jackie was moving before the words were even out of my mouth, sprinting towards the windows in the living room. He threw back the musty yellow curtains, but faltered. Confusion and fear dashed across his face in turns. It was easy to understand why. Instead of cloudy glass, staring out on the forlorn graveyard, there was simply a sheet of implacable wallpaper. Smooth and seamless, as though no windows had ever existed there. Caroline tried the windows near the stairwell leading to the second floor. More of the same. Just blank walls covered in that gaudy floral print. Another crash from the basement doorway drew my eye. The creature was still shrieking and it's let me in him. But now it was working over the door like a boxer going to town on the heavy bag. The door rattled in its frame, the wood bowing and splintering with each successive blow. Back door, kitchen windows, I yelled at Jackie. Check them all. Everyone else... I paused, glancing around, wild-eyed. Weapons. Find a weapon. Anything you can use to defend yourself with. Everyone scattered, mostly heading for the living and dining rooms, while I made for the basement door. Since I already had a weapon, and a decent one, I planted myself in front of the basement door. Flashlight trained on the cracking wood, rebar raised and ready to go. It's the same back here, Jackie called out, scampering out of the kitchen, a pitted butcher knife clutched in one white-knuckled fist. The door won't budge and there aren't any windows. He spun in a slow circle like an animal trapped in a cage. What are we going to do, Mac? What the hell are we going to do? 
I shook my head because well, I didn't have an answer. The others appeared a few seconds later, clutching an assortment of wooden table legs from the dining room and busted beer bottles from the piss-stained mattress in the living room. All right, back door's fucked too, I said, never taking my eyes off the basement stairwell. Only way left is to go up. Are you fucking high? Danny hissed. Why would we go up there? There's five of us, one of him, we've got weapons, let's just bust this son of a bitch up. Why don't you shut the fuck up, Danny? I yelled, rounding on him. That thing isn't human. It's a monster, it's a demon or some shit, I don't know. And you don't even get a say because you're the only reason why we're here. So let's fucking go. Jackie's full of cow pies. This is all your fault, jackass. Now shut your mouth and get upstairs. Maybe the windows will work there. If not, well, maybe there's a way we could get onto the roof. Jackie and Caroline went without hesitation, but Danny and Scooter lingered, heading over to the living room, prepared to take a stand. Don't be morons. God, don't be morons, I said, backtracking for the staircase, happy as a pig in shit to get away from that screeching. Let me in. 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 Playing on repeat like a broken record. I was a few feet from the staircase when the basement door exploded outward, chunks of wood flipping through the air like shrapnel. The thing from the basement didn't waste a second. No, it scuttled out on all fours like an overgrown human-faced fly. Mr. Flysuit, I thought deliriously. Let's get this fucker. Danny screamed, charging in, a broken table leg upraised like a medieval mace, while his flashlight beam bobbed and weaved. Scooter was a step behind. I rounded the stairs, but had to stop. Had to. And I watched. Now, I honestly couldn't say why. Mr. Flysuit was skinny, even with the layers of shifting flies carpeting his body, but it moved like a snake and hit like a Mack truck. Danny lashed out with his club, a wild swing which sailed clear over the creature's head. The demon shot inside his guard and blasted him in the chest with a closed fist, lifting Danny into the air and flipping him ass over tea kettle. He crashed in a heap not far off, limbs splayed out, eyes hazy from shock. I hesitated, eyeing the stairs then Danny, then the stairs, and then Danny. And finally, I rushed over, helping the moron to his feet, glancing up in time to see Scooter lunge forward, thrusting a broken bottle towards the thing's face. Flysuit batted aside the attack with lazy ears, then leaped like a pit bull, nails slashing into Scooter's throat, drawing a deep line of red across the skin. Scooter dropped the bottle and staggered back, clutching his ruined neck, mouth wide as blood leaked between his fingers. Flysuit wasn't done. It tackled Scooter around the middle, driving a shoulder into his gut and bringing him to the ground. I tore my eyes away. There was nothing we could do here. Not for Scooter. Maybe not for ourselves. Instead, I turned and dragged Danny up the stairs, pursued by the gut-wrenching sound of Mr. Flysuit chewing and slurping. There was another door at the top of the stairs, but Jackie and Caroline were gone, vanished, 
Danny and I shoved our way through, leaving Scooter to die, guilt riding my back like a monkey. The door swung shut and darkness enveloped us, save for the meager illumination of our flashlights. There wasn't anything for our flashlights to illuminate. The room, if it was really a room, seemed to stretch on forever with no walls and no visible end. It was an impossibly big space, and there was no way to tell where we were, or where we needed to go. There was no sign of Caroline or Jackie either. Danny and I were lost in an ocean in the dead of night without any idea of where the shore lay. Where the hell are we? Danny asked in a harsh whisper, sweeping his light fruitlessly from left to right. Where the hell are we? He said again, this time more to himself than to me. I turned around, searching behind me for the door. I found the wall easily enough, covered in the same awful floral print as below, stretching off in either direction for as far as I could see. But there was no door. I turned to Jackie again, pressing my back firmly against the wall, and I shouted, Jackie? I paused as my voice echoed and bounced, oddly distorted. Caroline? After a few long moments, Caroline answered, We're here, near the door. Her voice sounded faded, weak, and impossible to pinpoint. It felt like hearing someone shout while underwater. Follow the wall, Jackie called, but watch out for the... His words guttered and died, as though the house had silenced them before he could spoil whatever surprise it had in store for us. Jackie? Caroline? Danny hollered, a hand cupped around his mouth. This time, there was no answer. Just crushing, terrible silence and all-pervading darkness. Come on. I said, nudging Danny in his meaty shoulder. I turned right and walked, trailing the length of rebar along the wall as I scanned the featureless room for any sign of Jackie, Caroline, or an exit. Danny walked behind me, checking our back trail every few steps to make sure the freak from the basement wasn't tagging along behind us. I didn't see anything, but I felt eyes on my back the whole while, as if someone or lots of people were watching us from just outside the range of my flashlight. We walked for a long time, ten minutes maybe, when my light finally flashed over something up ahead. A corner, with another long wall angling off to the left. Instead of celebrating at the fine though, I skittered to a stop. Danny ran into me from behind. What the hell, dude? He started, his words cut short as his gaze landed on the boy standing ahead, head bowed, facing the corner like a toddler in time out. He was a dusky-skinned black kid, maybe five in thoroughly stained blue pajamas. The cuffs were ripped and frayed, and I crept away on silent feet, driven by instinct, but stopped again when I heard the rustle of movement coming from behind me. The noise was faint, barely there at all, the scuttle and scrape of nails on the floor and the distant droning of flies. The kid in the corner seemed to hear the sound too, and turned his head towards us, the rest of his body stiff and unmoving. A scream built in my chest, but caught in my throat like a piece of popcorn. 
All that came out was a weak, hollow squeak. The boy had no face. It was like someone had used a giant ice cream scoop to hollow out his entire skull, leaving only a sliver of chin and an edge of forehead as a remainder of what had once been. There was no blood, gore, or bone, though, and no strings of gray brain matter. Nope. It was just a hollow cavity filled with inky shadows. The little kid lifted his finger, placing where his mouth should have been. Shh, he hissed, despite not having a mouth. He comes. The scuttling intensified, the scritch, scratch, scritch, drawing closer as the buzzing built. And all will be punished. Then the little boy simply turned back to the wall, resuming his self-imposed time out. Well, fuck this shit, Danny said, shaking his head like he refused to believe his eyes. Mac, we gotta go. We gots to go. He spun, not waiting for me to reply, and bolted away from the wall, running headlong into the darkness and not caring. Anything to get away from the creepy-ass kid without a face. I hesitated for only a heartbeat before taking off too, training my flashlight on Danny as we ran. This was dumb. I knew. We should have tried to skirt around the boy and follow the wall but I couldn't stomach the thought of being stuck in here alone. I saw nothing as I ran, just choking blackness and scuffed hardwood floors underfoot, but I heard the constant scritch-scratching of nails on wood the whole way. Eventually, a wooden door, the frame covered in jagged green script, pulsing with cancerous light, materialized out of the dark. Aside from the strange runes running along the frame, the door looked identical to the one we'd entered the room through, except that there were no walls around it. It stood free and unsupported like an ancient Egyptian obelisk. I slowed my mad dash and circled it slowly, carefully running my fingers over the surface as I walked, and it vibrated subtly beneath my digits, but it didn't seem to lead anywhere. After all, how could it? When I tried the knob, though, it turned easily in my hand, swinging open, spilling a pool of dirty purple light across the floor. What the hell is this place? I thought before hustling through, eager to leave the black room behind. The odd door deposited Danny and me into a new room, except that it wasn't a room at all. It was a forest, is what it was. The ground a sea of lush green grass, the landscape peppered by towering oaks, old-growth pines, and broad-leafed sycamores. And like everything else in this place, the forest wasn't natural. Trees were wrong, for one. The leaves and pine needles were all varied shades of red. The tree trunks and twisted things that looked like human bodies, but distorted and broken, with faces protruding out, each permanently locked in a rictus of suffering. High above, a bloated purple moon hung in a cloudless sky like a rotting plum, and strange of all, though, were the doors. More freestanding doors, haphazardly strewn among the trees. Each door was nearly identical, thick wood, 
scrolling runes and a square window in the center, but each peered out on a different destination. I saw a few towns, podunk places not so different from Lusk, and a handful of big cities with yawning skyscrapers of steel and glass. But there were other places too. Fantastical, impossible places where the air burned, where islands floated unsupported in the sky, where creatures made of discarded branches, rotting vines, sludgy mud, and bits of bone milled about in deep shadow. But none of these doors were ours. I knew they might open for others, but not for us. There was only one door for us. One door which would lead back to Lusk, and that was the one we needed to find. Let's go, Danny. We need to find Jack and Caroline if we can. Either that, or the way out. Hell, if there is even a way out. I finished weakly. Yeah, he mumbled softly, wheeling about, eyes wide as saucers. We walked. We walked so long. I lost track of time. I was on the verge of giving up, sitting down, leaning back against one of the distorted, bloody trees, and closing my eyes for a while, when Danny gave out a hoot of joy, pumping a fist in the air. Jackie and Caroline emerged from a thick cluster of pines, not far ahead, stumbling around drunkenly, their faces pale, their movements languid. Even at a glance, I could tell they were exhausted to the bone. But they looked up at the sound of Danny's cry, huge smiles breaking across their faces almost in unison. Those smiles slipped though, falling by the wayside as they caught sight of something behind us. A creeping dread spread through me like a fever, and I was suddenly sure the man with flies was behind us, silently creeping through the grass on all fours, ready to pounce to maim, to kill. A cold sweat broke out along my forehead and trickled down my back. I clenched down on the spit of rebar and spun, lips pulled back in a snarl. Instead of the Mr. Flysuit, though, was the front door to the house at the end of North Cedar Point. And not just the door, the whole foyer, the floral-clad walls grew right up out of the ground, as if they were a natural part of the landscape. Except now, a single phrase was gouged into the drywall over and over again. Let me out. The ragged edges of the lettering combined with smears of dried brown made me think those markings had been made by hand, carved out with desperate, bloody fingers. I glanced down and noticed the floorboards were back, too, blending and bleeding seamlessly into the grass behind me. It was impossible to pinpoint where one ended and the other began. Oh, we should have never have come here, Jackie said, his normal, mousy voice, certain and somber. This is my fault. I knew it wasn't a hobo, but I told the story anyway. I started this shit. He clenched his jaw tight and marched forward, slipping between Danny and me and right up to the door. He extended a hand, but hesitated, just inches from the knob, unsure. Thinking back, it's almost like he knew what was coming, even though that's just impossible. He nodded his head, 
then as if accepting his fate, clasped the knob and gave it a turn. This time the door swung inward with a squeal, revealing the grassy rise in the cemetery beyond. Flysuit was also standing there, crouched low to the ground, its lips pulled back, revealing its broken glass teeth. It shot forward, jabbing its talon-tipped fingers into Jackie's gut, plunging in and out, in and out, over and over again, like a pair of meaty pistons. Jackie stumbled back, dropping his table-leg club, groping at his stomach while frothy crimson gurgled between his lips. His heel caught on a rock protruding from the ground, and he went down like a load of bricks. Flysuit attacked like a shark with a nose full of blood, scrambling onto Jackie, driving its bony knees into his ruined gut, clamping his jaws around his throat, while flies poured into Jackie's open mouth, their writhing bodies choked off his cries. Caroline, Danny, and I, well, we had two options at that moment. Attack the thing murdering our friend, or run. A fight or flight distilled down to its most basic form. Danny chose first, shoving past me as he lumbered for the door, terror in his eyes and Jackie already forgotten. I wish I could say I'd done something different, that I'd been braver, a better person. But I wasn't. I hooked an arm around Caroline, frozen in place with indecision, and I bolted. I glanced back one last time as I cleared that front porch, and though it's hard to be certain, I could have sworn Flysuit loitered in the doorway, and behind him was a new sapling sprouting up from the center of Jackie's sunken chest. I don't remember how we got back to Caroline's, though. None of us did. We all woke up the next morning as the sun crept over the horizon, shooting golden fingers into the pale blue sky. It almost felt like everything from the night before had just been a terrible nightmare, brought on by a combination of too much alcohol and too many cheesy campfire horror stories. Except, we were two people short. Scooter and Jackie were gone, their bikes nowhere to be seen. A farmer, fellow by the name of Leslie Hathorne from Manville, found their bodies later that day, over by the tracks, hit by a freight train, then picked over by a pack of coyotes. Okay, there it is. That's the story I haven't told a soul. Well, not in 20 years, anyway. Now let's get back to the present and back to the Mandela effect. So a couple of months ago, I returned to Lusk for my 20-year high school anniversary. I didn't go back for the 10-year because I couldn't force myself to see the place again. Not after what had happened. Couldn't stand to look at my parents in the eye. To drive down the 85 or to talk to the old crew. Sands, Jackie Morgan, and Mark Lehman, obviously. I just couldn't do it. I didn't want the nightmares to come back. But after 20 years, after 20 years, well, I just threw my hands up and said, fuck it. You know what? Fuck it all. The town was more modern than I remembered, but only just. Mostly it was the same shitty brick buildings, the same glass-fronted diners, 
A few had different names, at least, and the same sagging faces, even more tired and worn down by the years. Honestly, the place looked like it had one foot in the grave. One stiff breeze might have blown everything over and wiped the whole place right off the map, good and proper. And that probably wouldn't be a bad thing. But still, there was some part of me that felt good being there. Going back was this cathartic experience. Like I was finally ready to move past everything. To really put it behind me. Naturally, the first thing I did was putter up to the house at the end of North Cedar in my Camry. The tires balled, the suspension shot, the front window cracked, a huge dent in the front fender. I headed north on 85, South Cedar Street in town, cruising past the mom-and-pop drugstore and the Herald newspaper building, then over to the train tracks on the edge of the town proper. I veered left onto North Main Street, a two-lane cut of asphalt with a squat white plaster propane shop on the right, and I headed straight for another 200 feet, which saw me through the stone cemetery gates. I idled past the swath of green grass, strutted with tombstones like blunt gray teeth, and into the pine trees on the far side. It didn't take me long to find the rise at the end of North Cedar, the one where the house should have been, but wasn't. I killed the car, unbuckled my seatbelt, and I slid out. I frowned, fished a pack of reds from my pocket, and lit up a smoke as I leaned against the hood of my car. I stood there for a good half an hour, chain-smoking cigarette after cigarette, my arms folded across my sunken chest, nicotine flooding my system, as I stared at the unassuming plot of land. There was an old concrete slab there, pitted and chipped, a foundation like maybe someone years and years ago had thought about building something out here, but finally decided against it. You can actually see that slab on Google Maps if you're inclined to check. 42.77.3047-104.45213. But there wasn't any sign of the house. No sign of the basement either. It had been 20 years. So my assumption was someone had just leveled the damn place and backfilled the basement in with concrete. Except, that's not what happened. It was the Mandela effect. You see, I climbed into my car and headed back into town, stopping at this cozy hole in the wall for lunch. I ordered a greasy burger and made idle talk with a tired-looking waitress, with a wave of chestnut hair going gray at the temples and deep bags under her eyes. Eventually, I asked her about the house at the end of North Cedar, the one past Jefferson Street by the cemetery. She'd been in Lusk almost as long as I'd been away, but she'd never heard of the place. Not once. Not even as part of some sort of scary urban legend. I smiled, thanked her, and finished my meal in peace. And after that, I made a pit stop at a gas station, asking a pudgy kid of maybe 19 about the house. Same question, same answer. The Herald newspaper was open, so I stopped there next. James Mackerson, a beanpole with a basset hound face, who run the Herald even when I had been a kid, was tooling around the office. The guy had to be in his early 70s, but he was still working hard and looking pretty damn spry for such an old fella. He didn't remember me, not that I offered him my name, but even more disconcerting, 
he didn't remember the house. He insisted no such place had ever existed. Just that stone pad laid out in the 1940s by a pair of brothers named the McLeans. No one remembered. No one except for Caroline Buckner. Jackie and Scooter were dead. Danny was long gone, in prison from what I could find, but Caroline was at the reunion. She hadn't aged well. Her body had gone soft and flabby. Her hair prematurely gray. Not that I was in a position to cast stones. I looked like a giant bag full of soggy dicks. But still, I knew it was her in an instant. I could tell by her steely blue eyes and the lines of her jaw. And one look at her told me all I needed to know. She remembered all right. The way she tensed up when she saw me. The wild, panicked look in her gaze, followed by a wave of guilt sprinting across her features. I didn't need to ask because the memories were carved into her flesh like old scars. I did ask, though, because I'd come from Milwaukee for this, and I needed to be sure. Needed it more than I've needed anything else. Our conversation was brief. Neither of us could stomach talking about what happened in the house. But she remembered, and maybe even more importantly, she also told me a few names. People like us who knew about that house too. Brian Wilkerson, this guy a couple of years older than us, who went to the next high school over. Jamie Burakoff, a soccer mom from Manville who dated this high school buddy of mine, Chad Jenkins. Not a lot of people but enough people to reinforce that I wasn't batshit bonkers. The Mandela effect, huh? Am I right? I mean, I know that place is real. I'm not crazy. And Mr. Flysuit? Well, I know he's real too. Know it as sure as I know the sky is blue. Him, I still see. Not always, not even often, but sometimes. In a pocket of deep shadow. Or as a blur just out of the corner of my eye. Sometimes there's a flash of him in my mirror, or on my computer screen late at night. I see his face, distorted and indistinct, mouthing the words, let me in, let me in. He's already got his hooks into me, not enough to break through from wherever he lives, but enough for me to get a glimpse of him whenever our universes rubs shoulder from time to time. And I wonder sometimes if there are others like me out there. Other people with their own versions of the house at the end of North Cedar. Haunted places that don't exist. Not in this version of reality anyway. But maybe in some other place in time. In some other world remembered only by a few. There's gotta be, right? There were a shitload of doors in that weird forest and all those trees twisted and oddly human. Had those all been people once, like Jackie? And when I say it out loud, it sounds crazy. Totally impossible. If thousands of people remember Mandela dying, however, even though that never happened, then why not this? But then I think this is probably all just a bunch of bull. A terrible, half-remembered nightmare I concocted to make sense of losing two friends. Probably Jackie and Scooter did get hit by a train while drunk. Maybe the coyotes picked over their bodies. Maybe. Some part of me hopes so. Because the other alternative is too scary to get my head around. 
and probably not for the reason you're thinking. I mean, sure, what happened was traumatizing. That goes without saying. But what I'm really worried about is that someday down the road, he might come back for me. Because here's the thing. It seems that once the Mandela effect takes roots in the collective hive mind of humanity, more and more people begin to remember. It's like catching a mental cold, a virus passed on through belief, imagination, and memory. And the more people who remember, who believe, the more real it becomes. And maybe that's not such a big deal with little things like Shazam or Curious George's Tale. But what about the monster that lived in the house at the end of North Cedar Street? Will that collective belief spawn more houses and more windows for Mr. Flysuit to gaze through? And if it does, how long before someone slips up and lets him through for good? How long before he finds a way to let himself into my home for good? Or into yours? <laughs> 